what we know is that there were extensive wetlands and floodplains throughout the whole valley. It's estimated there were 4 million acres of wetlands in the Central Valley. It was also a big seasonal floodplain Mm -hmm. where streams and rivers would come down from the mountains, carry their snowmelt, and seasonally inundate large areas, huge areas of the valley. Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever wished they could peek back in time a few hundred or a thousand or million years. I'm Michelle Fulner, and you just heard the voice of Ellen Weir describing what California's Central Valley was like a few hundred years ago. Because in this episode, we're going to dive deep into the watery history of the largest valley in the United States, including an ancient inland sea, natural levees, 10-foot-tall grasses, peat bogs, 400-pound salmon, tule elk, managed wetlands, grizzly bears, sinking cities and farmland, aqueducts, camels, bird migration, places you can go to see something like what the Central Valley looked like prior to colonization, why water in California is so controversial, and how we can work together to provide water for communities, agriculture, and wildlife alike. If you're interested in this topic, or really anything to do with the natural world in California, and would like to help me create more episodes like it, it would mean so much to me if you considered supporting the show on Patreon for as little as $4 a month. Coming up in the next couple of months, I'm going to be traveling to a bunch of places, including Humboldt County, the Sonoma Coast, the Sierra Nevada Mountains, and more for a wide variety of interviews I think you're going to love. Your donation helps so much in covering travel costs, audio equipment, and necessary software for making the show, but it also gets you access to all kinds of fun video and audio extras, AMAs, and more. You can find me on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. And if you're looking for a totally free way to help out, the number one best thing you can do is share your favorite episode with any friend, family member, or colleague who has ever pointed out a bird to you. Next, make sure you're following the show wherever you get your podcasts. On Apple Podcasts, you can do that by hitting the little plus sign in the top right-hand corner of your screen. It'll look like a checkmark if you've already done this. If you want to see what my face looks like or see my outdoor adventures, you can find me at Golden State Naturalist on both Instagram and TikTok. My website is www.goldenstatenaturalist.com. And I'm excited to announce that there is now merch for the show. If you want to get a t-shirt, sweatshirt, or tank top, head to www.goldenstatenaturalist.com store. But now let's get to the episode. Ellen Weir is general counsel for the Grassland Water District in Merced County, which serves water to the Grassland Ecological Area, the largest remaining freshwater wetland complex in the western United States. She has practiced water and land use law in Sacramento since 2007, specializing in Central Valley Project water issues. Ellen serves on several boards of organizations focused on water and environmental conservation, including Ducks Unlimited, Friends of the Inyo, and the Los Vaqueros Reservoir Joint Powers Authority. So without further ado, let's hear from Ellen Weir on Golden State Naturalist. my first interview in a conference room. Yeah, we're in a fancy conference I room. I feel underdressed. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm not wearing hiking boots. It's really weird. 
Okay, so genuinely, I thought I was doing okay by going business casual to this interview and not like full hiking apparel. But then a bunch of people walked by in suits and I wanted to become part of the carpet. And Ellen, your background is in law, right? And That's so right. Yeah. how do you know about water stuff? What's the connection there? Well, I, I did actually study ecology and sustainable agriculture uh, when I was in undergrad. And I ended up going to law school to be an environmental lawyer. Cool. And when I went to law school, they said, what kind of environmental lawyer? And I said, I don't know, water. I love water. I've always loved water. I grew uh -huh. up by the water. And then they asked me, what kind of water law? like water quality, <laughs> water rights. Oh and gosh. so I get more and more niched as my career went on. And now I am a, a water rights lawyer who practices water law for wildlife refuges and wetlands in the Central Valley. Ellen's developed this understanding of water in the Central Valley in her now more than 15 years practicing water law in Sacramento. And so when you say the Central Valley, that encompasses, and I'm going to talk with my hands, but it encompasses this whole stretch of the whole middle of the state. So we've got the Sacramento Valley and the San Joaquin Valley. That's right. So tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So if you look on a map of California, you can see this huge bathtub-shaped valley. It's really kind of impressive, especially mm -hmm. if you have the topographical map. The Central Valley was referred to once as the Great Central Valley. It is about 450 miles long, and it spans from Mount Shasta in the north all the way down to Kern County and Bakersfield and even further south. And it basically is a bathtub that was formed from unique processes, but that encompasses the river valley of the Sacramento, which is California's largest river, and the San Joaquin, its second largest river. And those two rivers come together in the, the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, mm -hmm. uh, which is the largest estuary on the West Coast. Pretty neat place. National Geographic defines an estuary as an area where a freshwater river or stream meets the ocean. In estuaries, the salty ocean mixes with a freshwater river, resulting in brackish water. Brackish water is somewhat salty, but not as salty as the ocean. And the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration points out that estuaries are often called the nurseries of the sea because numerous animal species rely on them for nesting and breeding. Most of the fish and shellfish eat in the United States, including salmon, herring, and oysters, complete at least part of their life cycles in estuaries. Now, if you're not familiar with the location of this particular estuary, I'm here to help. If you were in the city of San Francisco and you had a boat, you'd climb aboard on the eastern side of the peninsula, sail up to the San Pablo Bay, which is to the northeast of the city, and then you'd keep going east through the much smaller Sassoon Bay that would then lead you into the delta. At which point, if you were me, you would get very lost and confused by the sheer number of directions you could possibly go. There are nearly 200 islands in the delta, not all of them named, ranging in size, bordered by wide or narrow channels of water snaking in every conceivable direction. Okay, but let's zoom back out to see the whole Central Valley. And so is the Delta kind of the splitting point of the two valleys? If you're like, okay, the Central Valley is the whole thing. The northern part north of the Delta is the Sacramento and south of the Delta is the San Joaquin Valley. Is that, That's right. am I thinking about it correctly? Okay. That's right. And Great. so it's often described that the Sacramento Valley gets a lot more precipitation and a lot more rainfall and snowmelt, mm. and the San Joaquin Valley uh, gets a lot less water. Oh. And so the history of water in California is really about moving moving it around mm -hmm. from areas where there's a lot of water to areas where there's not so much water. Mm -hmm. The formation of the Central Valley is really interesting. Basically, it used to be an inland sea that had a, a bay 
that went out to the ocean to the south, Bakersfield, that area. Uh-huh. And it was connected to the ocean. It's kind of like, a, I would think like a huge fjord or something like that. Oh, um, huge 400 pound salmon would swim up from the ocean into 400 one... pounds. How many years ago are we talking? I'm talking like 5 million years okay, ago. Okay. Okay. Yes. So this is like <laughs> megafauna. Is that what that's called? Megafauna? Yeah, that's right. Back in that era. Okay. So there were probably like maybe giant sloths wandering the earth at the same time. Yeah, just a few years ago, the East Bay Mud, which is a, the East Bay Municipal Utility District, they run a big water system that supplies a lot of the Eastern Bay area mm-hmm. uh, from the foothills all the way there. Somebody discovered these fossils of camels, rhinoceros. What? Mastodons in California, two tusk, ma- four tusk mastodons. I don't know how many tusks they had, but they were like tiny little elephants that could definitely fit through the door of this conference room. Oh my god! Um, there were large tortoises and everything like that. So those are the kind of animals that used to live by this huge inland sea that then became the Central Valley. And the salmon, the four hundred pound salmon, I mentioned, they had these big teeth, like these two teeth and it was just a wild time I'm sure to be here Um, I would love to like travel through time and see that I mean I also terrifying right me too and you can see the pictures of the fossils on the East Bay Mud website but it's pretty neat so this is wild According to an article from The Guardian that I'll link in the show notes, back in 2020, Water District Ranger Greg Francic, I think it's pronounced, was patrolling this area on the eastern edge of the Central Valley when he saw a rock that looked strangely like bark, and it turned out to be petrified wood. And there was so much more there than petrified wood. The article states, soon scientists were unearthing fossils from a whole zoo of prehistoric animals that existed in the time period known as the Miocene Epoch. It was more than 50 million years after dinosaurs roamed the continent, and it would be millions of years before humans appeared. It was an age when the mastodons wandered North America. Volcanic activity and shifting geologic plates had not yet formed the Sierra Nevada, and most of Southern California was still underwater. And the types of fossils discovered at the site are exactly as Ellen described. Here's how the Guardian sets the scene. Imagine a California with volcanoes erupting to the east and Los Angeles buried under the Pacific Ocean. Giant camels, rhinoceros, and four-tusked miniature elephants graze on a lush landscape, only to be preyed upon by bone-crushing dogs. And I was super shocked by all of this at the time of the interview because I hadn't yet recorded the episode on the La Brea Tar Pits, which released earlier in this season. So go check out that La Brea episode if you want to learn more about these incredible animals and ice ages and all kinds of cool prehistoric stuff. So then what happened, what they think happened is that the, you know, the coast range uplifted the San Andreas Fault and other faults lifted up the coastal mountains to the south and closed off that bay to the oh, ocean. Uh-huh. And so then what we had was a big lake that they called um, Lake Corcoran. Hmm. And that lake, they don't, they don't know exactly how extensive it was, but it definitely filled the San Joaquin Valley and wow. probably extended up into the Sacramento Valley. Oh um, hundreds goodness. and hundreds of miles totally closed off from and the ocean. was this fresh water or was it trapped salt water from the... I, th- I think it was at that point a mixture of both, right? Oh, so you had the inland sea yeah. that got closed off and then the melt, the runoff, mm-hmm. the snow melt that came in for the this, rainwater. this huge oh, lake. Yeah. Okay. And they think that originally the lake would sometimes fill and spill out of Monterey Bay. Wow. And then at some point, whether by natural erosion or by some kind of catastrophic release of, you know, glacial debris, the 
the lake emptied out at Carquinez Strait, which is that narrow strait that you cross over the bridge to to go to the Bay Area. Okay. And that is now where the delta started forming. It backed up there. So after the glaciers melted about 10,000 years ago, the sea level rose and the sediments from the San Joaquin and Sacramento rivers just started depositing because it didn't really have anywhere to go. And it built up the delta. The delta Mm -hmm. is where those two rivers come together. And it formed this huge wetland, this mm-hmm. huge estuary, deposited those sediments, plants started growing there, tules, which are you know the native uh, reeds that grow here, would die and grow and decay, and it formed a big peat bog. Peat oh. is like, you know, decomposed organic matter. Mm-hmm. And so the whole delta was this huge braided, big, huge islands of, of decomposed Whoa. peat and everything. And that's, that's what we have now. That <laughs> essentially. is so cool. And so I guess kind of in more, now you've gotten us to more modern geologic times, right? And right. so thinking about geologically or in this geologic age, things being the way that they are, but before European contact, I'm yeah. curious about what it would have been like in the Central Valley, either Sacramento or San Joaquin during that time period. What was that like? Well, I wasn't here, <laughs> but I think I think what we what we know is that there were extensive wetlands and floodplains throughout the whole valley. It's estimated there were four million acres of wetlands in wow. the Central Valley, and I tried to figure out how big that is. The closest I could come is that. The entire Yosemite National Park is less than a million acres in size. And that's a really big national park. So this would be at least four or five times that extent of of wetlands. It was also a big seasonal floodplain Mm -hmm. where streams and rivers would come down from the mountains, carry their snowmelt, and seasonally inundate large areas, huge areas of the valley. In order to visualize this, Ellen sent me a Defenders of Wildlife page called the Wetlands of California's Central Valley. I'll link this in the show notes because it's packed with fantastic information, but one of the coolest things about it is that it includes a map of California's wetlands that is both pre-1900s and 2016. And you can swipe a magic line across the map to reveal the wetlands of one time period or the other. I have to say that as cool as this is, it's also kind of heartbreaking because the pre-1900s map has large swaths of blue across both the Sacramento and San Joaquin valleys, representing the historic wetlands in those places. And the 2016 map has just these tiny little pinpricks of blue in just a few of the places the solid blue used to be. I can't help but look at this modern map and imagine myself as a bird flying along the Pacific Flyway, looking for food and rest and not finding a whole lot of options. At least not when compared with the near continuous bed and breakfast situation that pre-1900s era migratory birds would have found. Here's Ellen describing in more detail what that would have looked like. You had Tulare Lake, which was a very large lake that formed in the San Joaquin Valley, in the Mm -hmm. southern San Joaquin Mm -hmm. Valley. And it would swell in size every year. It was 80 miles long. Whoa! It was three times the size of Lake Tahoe in surface area, but it was very shallow for a lake. So it would fill with all the runoff from the Kings River Mm -hmm. um, and San Joaquin Rivers and others and just swell up to to be this extremely huge lake. In the Sacramento Valley... There were braided river channels and riparian forests everywhere. So there were hardwood riparian forests that lined all of these different channels. 
They say that some of the streams like Butte Creek, Cache Creek, Puda Creek, things we know about from living here that now make their way all the way to the Delta, they did not even reach the river because they would form these natural levees. So there actually were quite a few naturally formed levees all through the Sacramento Valley. Uh They were up to 20 feet tall. They were up. They were miles wide and miles long, oh um, and they would hold water in basins. And so I think that the mosaic of the Sacramento Valley, especially, was lots of floodplain, lots of different basins to capture mm-hmm. water, and t- just tons of wetlands and riparian forests, and then a lot of natural grasslands that formed up around mm-hmm. the edges, like the, the uplands they called them. The wetland grasses, we call them wetland grasses, are now what a lot of people would. Refer Referred to as reeds. Mm-hmm. So the tulies were at oh. least 10 feet tall, at least. And they wow. they encompassed a lot of the wetland areas in the Delta, especially the San Joaquin Valley, where I work in the grasslands. We call it the grasslands. Uh-huh. And it's because it was this overflow. The San Joaquin Valley was a little different from the Sacramento Valley because of the, the Tulare Lake and those mm-hmm. other floodplain lakes, they would mm-hmm. seep out into the San Joaquin River over the summer. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't have as much sediment because the lakes would settle out the sediment. So the San Joaquin River never really built a lot of those natural levees. Mm-hmm. It didn't deposit sediment as much as in the Sacramento. And so every winter, the water would flood and just spread out on the flat San Joaquin Valley mm-hmm. and form these seasonal marshes. And those marshes had grasses Tulies and others that water grass that would just cover and be so tall you mm-hmm. couldn't even see through them. I think then in the spring with the native grasslands there would be this huge super bloom of flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, so folks who who came and settled here would look out at the San Joaquin Valley. I know John Muir described this as like the floweriest place they had ever mm-hmm. seen. Wow. Just this explosion of wildflowers. And you had a lot of herbivores, like large herbivores, like pronghorn antelope oh, wow. and tule elk mm-hmm. that are native only to the Central Valley in California oh, that would graze on all, all of these grasses all, all summer long. So there would be probably, like were there big herds of these animals just kind of run around? Yeah, it's really hard to imagine, yeah. but I think there I'm were trying tens to get a of thousands of oh antelope and elk, mm-hmm. um, as well as other animals. A grizzly bear was here. The puma was here. I always think of bears as being in the mountains, because here in California, if you're going to see a bear, it's going to probably be at Lake Tahoe or somewhere up in the Sierras, you know, and those are brown bears. I mean, black bears. It's so hard to imagine grizzly bears wandering around Sacramento Valley. I know. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> impossible. Well, do you know of any other predators that were here? Uh, There were wolves here. There were wolves, coyotes, pumas, or cougars. There there was a story last year of a wolf who came from the Sierra and made made his way all the way down to the San Joaquin Valley and actually crossed the valley. Um, He was radio collared, and so Mm -hmm. they could track him. He made his way all the way to San Luis Obispo. I don't exactly know how he got across all of the water canals and freeways that line the valley now, but it's a pretty pretty amazing feat. That is remarkable. (laughs) So they would have been wandering all over the place without having to worry about freeways or water canals. Yeah, and of course they ate the rodents. There's so many native rodents that used to be here and and other species like the kangaroo rat Mm. um, Mm -hmm. and others that were, you know, populated all throughout. Ground squirrels, I'm sure, mm-hmm. all over the valley, mm-hmm. as they still are. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. Ground squirrels have made it. They're still here. How deep did the floodwaters go when it was those seasonal floods? Was it like you're in what's now Old Town Sacramento and it's like 20 feet deep because it's so close to the river? Or is it like a shallow floodplain spread out really far? 
I think most of it was shallow. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think that is because of all the waterfowl that migrated here Mm -hmm. and continue to migrate here. You know, there's estimates that there were 40 to 50 million waterfowl alone, not including all the shorebirds and all of the land birds that migrate here on the Pacific Flyway. And those birds, most of them are very adapted to pretty shallow water, Mm -hmm. right? So they eat the invertebrate bugs that bloom beneath the the floodwater. Um, They eat the grasses and seeds from the grasses. And they really thrive, you know, depending on the species in water that's only up to a few feet deep. There's estimates that Tulare Lake, that huge 80-mile lake in the San Joaquin Valley, was up to 40 feet deep. Oh, wow. Which is still pretty shallow for a lake, but Mm -hmm. a seasonal lake that got shallower as you went out to the edges. And I did read that the big flood here in Sacramento that forced, you know, lots of residents here out in 1862 that took months to recede Mm -hmm. afterward. It was a 100 or 200-year flood. That got to about up to 30 feet deep wow. here in Sacramento. So oh I think goodness. it varied, right? These basins yeah. would fill up, and but a lot of it was just a vast floodplain of probably shallow water only a few feet deep. Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar with that 1862 flood, it is very much worth going and looking up historic photos of it because you can see people navigating the streets of Old Town Sacramento, which I guess at the time was just called Sacramento, but in boats. And there are even some buildings with ladders going up to the second story so that people wouldn't have to go through the flooded bottom levels to get inside. Now, I wasn't able to verify this next part, but I've heard that Leland Stanford had to travel by boat from the second story of his house to the state capitol for his inauguration on January 10th of 1862. And shortly after that date, on January 23rd, the state capitol was temporarily moved from Sacramento to San Francisco due to the floods, during which over 4,000 people died and the property damage totaled $100 million dollars which is over $3 billion in today's money. The indigenous people of Sacramento, though, knew better than to put themselves in this kind of situation. With such deep roots in the valley and stories passed down through the generations to guide them, they didn't make permanent settlements in areas that flooded seasonally. Instead, the Nisanon people of what is now Sacramento would make seasonal tule houses in the summer and then head to upland areas and permanent structures during the rainy months. If you live in or around Sacramento, you can head to Effiaw Nature Center to see examples of the seasonal tule houses. I want to note that I'm using the past tense here because I'm talking about a time over 160 years ago when hydrology and technology in the state were completely different. But the Nisanon people and other Central Valley tribes are still very much present today. If you get the chance, check out nisanon.org to learn more about their story in particular, because this tribe that was once federally recognized actually had their recognition stripped and Rancheria terminated in 1963. And visibility and donations are both helpful as they seek to regain federal recognition. There's a lot more history here, so that's nisanon, N-I-S-E-N-A-N, dot org to learn more. I'll also link it in the show notes. Okay, so far in this episode, we've traveled through 5 million years of Central Valley history. We've seen how the inland sea with its megafauna shifted to a vast system of wetlands all across the Sacramento and San Joaquin Valleys. Now we're going to head to a quick break. But when we get back, you'll hear how we got from those wetlands and riparian forests to the valley as it looks today. Stay tuned for that. Ellen and I will be back soon. 
Okay, story time. When I was a little kid, I had this thing about my socks and my mom still remembers this. You can see the look of just abject horror in her eyes every time this subject comes up because she would try to put my socks on me and I would have a full meltdown. Like I could not handle the way that they felt on my feet. And I've just always been sensitive about the way fabrics feel on my body. Anything that is too scratchy or has a tag or that isn't snug enough in the right places or is too snug in the wrong places is out. So it can be really hard for me to find clothes that I like. Enter Embody. So I recently got my first Bodhi jumpsuit. It's like wearing water that was woven into fabric by fairies. It's so soft. I'm actually wearing it right now, sitting here recording this. And I've been doing a lot of different activities today, like yoga and work and podcasting. And it has been the perfect outfit for all of those activities. Here's some other things I love about it. One, it is 100% made in California. Products are cut and sewn by hand in a woman-owned factory. They also care about sustainability and use mostly plant-based fabrics like eucalyptus and beech wood, and sometimes even reclaimed fabrics that would have gone to waste otherwise. So if you want to get yourself a very cute, very versatile onesie with pockets, head on over to embody.co. That's I-M-B-O-D-H-I dot C-O. And when you check out, use the code GOLDENSTATENATURALIST15 to get $15 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now back to my conversation with Ellen Weir. Okay, so I think kind of transitioning from what it used to be like to what it is like today, like how did we get from there to here? Because I've lived here for a few winters now, you know, and it, and it hasn't been like several feet of water on the ground everywhere I go. I haven't yeah. had to take a boat to work. So what happened? Well, a lot happened. I mean, the what we see today is the product of, of a lot of different activities and forces. First, you know, colonization happened here, agriculture happened here, and the gold rush happened that brought a lot of people to California. I think as the gold rush kind of died down, a lot of people then changed to agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so you originally have these hydraulic mining operations, especially in the Sacramento River tributaries like mm -hmm. the Yuba and the American River. They blasted the hillsides and literally choked the rivers mm -hmm. with millions of acre feet of material. Mm -hmm. And that altered and flooded even more down in Sacramento oh, wow. because it, it was just changing the the whole hydrology mm -hmm. of the valley. 
And I think those floods that happened, there was one in 1850 and 1862, especially here in Sacramento, they started building levees. Folks started mm-hmm. building levees and that, that kicked off an extensive period of flood protection work. There was a, a federal law, I think it was called the Arkansas Act in mm-hmm. 1850 that said, we, the federal government, will give land to the state of California as long as they reclaim it and build levees and produce you know, safe places for people to live and agriculture. The California legislature took it a step further than that act. They passed the Green Act, which allowed for those levees to be built anywhere. Mm-hmm. So the, the original Arkansas Act said that the levees should be built ar- along nat- natural water bodies. Mm-hmm. And California kind of loosened that up and allowed the levees to be built for convenience, oh, you know, for travel and where it was great to settle. The stories say that as a lot of gold miners and others started settling the valleys to do agriculture, they they started chopping down the riparian forests. Mm-hmm. And they would use that for fencing, for lumber, for fuel. They also used a lot of wood to fuel steam-powered ships that would mm-hmm. make their way up from the bay into the rivers. And that actually took up a lot of a lot of wood. Mm-hmm. And so those riparian forests, I think, very quickly disappeared. Mm-hmm. The levees, that those natural levees that I mentioned that were formed by the action of the rivers and the deposition of sediment, those turned out to be very fertile. And mm-hmm. so a lot of farming started to take place. The levees were started to breaking down. And so, yeah, we channelized the rivers. We reclaimed the islands. And I say we uh, as, you know, white, <laughs> white colonizers. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we settled the islands by building levees around those natural wetland islands, mm-hmm. those peat islands, and using them for farming. They were and, probably very good farmland with all that accumulated sediment and all of the nutrients that had yeah, for, really rich. The yeah. San Joaquin, Sacramento valleys, and the Delta are some of the, the richest farmland in the world. And we produce so much food here now that, you know, feeds the nation and the world. It's it's a really special place for agriculture, and it's also very, very different than what it looked like yeah. <laughs> uh, even 150 years ago. Right. And because it doesn't experience that seasonal flooding anymore with all the sediments coming in and everything, does that mean that the soil is gradually getting depleted? As it's farmed or? Yeah, I mean, that, that is especially happening in the Delta. Um, the peat soils are fairly fragile and when they are farmed and irrigated, they tend to sink. They mm. compact and they sink. And the levees in the Delta now are at risk because they are protecting uh, farmland that is essentially below sea level. Um, one of the islands was uh, breached in a storm uh, decades ago, mm-hmm. and it's now just an open water body. Uh, and so there's a lot of work being done to um, address how we move forward uh-huh. in the Delta. Um, what's the best balance between natural forces and agriculture and flood protection? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we you know, bring that more into balance? Right. But um, yeah, I think that's, you know, I don't think that the soils in the Sacramento and San Joaquin Valley are being depleted in that same way. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, intensive agriculture is is big here, so. Right, right. <laughs> okay, I got us off track talking about soil, but let's get back to the story of how water used to move through the Central Valley and how it does today. 
starting in like the 1915, 1920s, navigation was becoming more difficult as a result of agricultural water diversions and those hydraulic mines. And agriculture was expanding to new places in the southern San Joaquin Valley. Groundwater was being pumped, but it was becoming depleted. Mm -hmm. And so a plan was developed for this this state water project, the California Water Project Mm -hmm. in about 1919 was developed. And one of the first ideas was to dam the Sacramento River for water storage. Because we don't get a lot of precipitation for agriculture in the summer, we Mm -hmm. could use that stored water to improve navigation and to irrigate, and also to dam the San Joaquin River at Friant Dam. As you hear about this complex system of dams and aqueducts, one thing that might help put it all into context is what Ellen was actually referring to just now. California has a Mediterranean climate, which means that we have hot, dry summers. But of course, agriculture needs water during the summer. So a lot of the water history of California can be understood by remembering that we often need water in different places than the places where it fell, either as rain or snow, and at different times of the year than the time when it fell. So all of these structures, the dams and aqueducts, have been put into place to get the water where we want it, when we want it there. Unfortunately, we can't alter the landscape this drastically without consequences, which we'll talk more about soon. Okay, back to the history of these structures being built. So the Red Bluff Diversion Dam went in in 1937. That started backing up the Sacramento Valley. And then Millerton uh, Dam was built in 1942. That's the Millerton Lake Friant Dam on the Mm -hmm. San Joaquin. So that dammed the two big rivers Mm -hmm. here. And these canals started to be built and pumps started to be put in to move water around the state, like I was Mm -hmm. talking about. So the Friant Kern Canal and the Madera Canal, they take water from the San Joaquin River and move it over 100 miles to farmland to the south and north. And then as a replacement for the water that used to come down the San Joaquin River, because the San Joaquin River was completely cut off by Friant Dam. Oh, wow. It was completely dried out for long stretches of the year. And even now, there are times when it, is, it goes completely mm-hmm. dry, where actions are being taken to restore flows and restore mm-hmm. salmon there now. But when Friant Dam was built, it completely cut off the river. And so in exchange, they built pumps in the delta. And mm-hmm. those pumps were to take water released from the, the Shasta Dam, Red Bluff Dam, Sacramento River from the delta, and move that water through a series of very large canals to supply agriculture on the the west side in the San Joaquin Valley, the northern San Joaquin Valley, and also to start to carry water down to to Los Angeles. So those two big aqueducts, the the California Aqueduct and the Delta Mendota Canal, those provide the replacement water to the west side, and then the California Aqueduct takes the water and distributes it farther south. Successively, we built dams that are called, they're called rim dams because they're kind of Mm. on the rim of this bathtub that Mm -hmm. is the Central Valley at Oroville, Feather River, at Folsom, on the American River, the McCallany River, the Stanislaus River, all the way down. And there were a number of stories and controversies, (laughs) as you can imagine. You know, one that comes to mind, one of the last dams that was built was on the Stanislaus River and that was in 1979. Mm. The new Malones Reservoir was created, and that area of the river was really renowned for its whitewater rafting. Um, There was a huge community of rafters that loved the river. My Mm. husband even went rafting there in the 70s, said it was so beautiful. And an activist from that community who opposed the dam went up into the Stanislaus River area and chained himself to a boulder and would not reveal his location 
information, said that he had thrown away the key and prevented that dam from being completed temporarily. Right. But they looked for him for like a week. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, Just trying to oppose the damming Uh of what was one of, if not the only last free flowing river into the Central Valley at that time. So that was that was a controversy. Also, when they were going back to the the 30s and 40s, when they were planning this huge state water project, initially there was an idea to build the pumps in the San Joaquin River and reverse the flow of the San Joaquin River. So they would, you know, build Bryant Dam and and dry it out, then build pumps to take water from the Delta and push water up the San Joaquin River uh, for deliveries for agriculture. My eyes got so big. Like, (laughs) you're listening to this, you can't see it, but I'm just like, it's boggling my mind to think about that, reversing the flow of a river. Of the second largest river in California. I think the reason they didn't do it is because the San Joaquin River is, has so much gravel from, Mm. you know, millions of years of being a Mm floodplain that it wouldn't hold water, so to Mm. speak. So that idea idea did not hold water. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And so back to those aqueducts, is that what you see when you're driving I-5 between kind of like northern and southern California? You're doing the long drive down. Are you next to one of those aqueducts? Yeah, that's right. You see the the Delta Mendota Canal and the California Aqueduct. They're two that parallel each other. Mm -hmm. The Delta Mendota Canal provides water for agriculture and to wildlife refuges that I work for as Mm -hmm. well. And the California Aqueduct travels down to, it branches off to provide irrigation water to Kern County, and then it travels over the, it's pumped over the Tehachapi Mountains to Southern California and LA. Originally, the state water project or the California water project was planned by the state and it was going to be funded by the state. The citizens in the 1930s passed a a water bond, Mm -hmm. which we're familiar with seeing on the ballots now. And then the Great Depression hit and the state could not sell those bonds. They were unmarketable. And so they turned to the federal government. This was during kind of the era of um, building big federal projects to the New Mm -hmm. Deal. And the federal government took over. And that's why you have the Central Valley Project now, which is run by the Bureau of Reclamation, the Federal Bureau of Reclamation. So the federal government runs the facilities that are on, you know, Shasta Dam, Folsom Dam, and Friant Dam, and New Malones, and a few others. Mm -hmm. And later, in 1940s, there was another huge population boom. A huge wave of folks moved to California. Our water supply started to dwindle again, and the idea was revived to build the project out to its full extent. Mm-hmm. And that's when Oroville Dam went in on the Feather River mm-hmm. and other facilities like that. The California Aqueduct was built down to Southern California. And those facilities are called the State Water Project. Mm-hmm. And those are run by the State Department of Water Resources. So you have a federal project and a state project mm-hmm. all on these same systems that are delivering water to, you know, millions of people and millions of acres of farmland in California, but they are run in parallel because of kind of what happened in the 30s and 40s. So the absolute most simplified version of this I can come up with is that we built lots of dams, both large and small, to keep water from seasonally flooding the Central Valley and to store it for dry months, added pumps to the Delta to bring some of that water to canals, and started distributing the water to where it's needed when it's needed there, long distances across the state. I asked Ellen if she wanted to add anything about this period of dam and aqueduct construction as our conversation started to approach the present day. 
Well, I, I will just say that obviously rerouting the hydrology of California in that way created a lot of opportunity, but it also created a lot of controversy. Mm-hmm. Native peoples were displaced. The Winnemum-Wintu tribe is an active tribe right now who is kind of fighting against the expansion of the Shasta Dam Mm -hmm. and the rays of the Shasta Dam because they were initially displaced from the original construction of Shasta Dam. And the expansion of that dam would encroach further into their traditional territories. Mm-hmm. The the wetlands that used to be here and were defended vigorously by cattle producers and also duck hunters who knew how important that habitat was mm-hmm. for the migratory the Pacific flyway and migratory birds and they fought tooth and nail to try and get mitigation for that. Mm-hmm. Also over 90% of the salmon spawning habitat in the Central Valley in those upstream areas has been lost. And so there's an ongoing charge to try and restore and rehabilitate those anadromous fish populations that were lost. If you've been listening for a while, you're probably sick of hearing me say this, but salmon are a keystone species, meaning that they support a lot of other species. And when they're removed from an ecosystem, it has serious negative impacts on the entire ecosystem. If you want to hear more about that, there's two episodes on salmon from the first season. So go back and give those a listen. So a lot was gained and a lot was lost. (laughs) Right. And it's such a tough balance now because... I mean, how many people live in the Central Valley, right? Like millions of people live in the Central Valley. About 6,500,000 people live in the Central Valley. And so it's so hard to imagine how do we, you know, restore as much as possible? How do we conserve as much as possible? But we have millions of people living here. Yeah, there's still so many challenges, but also I think just so many new and innovative thinkers out there who are Mm -hmm. trying to bring balance and address all of those things at the Mm -hmm. same time. You know, we may be facing a future period of sea level rise due to climate change and also more extreme flooding events, more extreme heat events, different snowpack, diminished Mm -hmm. snowpack. So there's a lot of discussion about how best to to handle this going forward. California's population, although it's not growing right now, today, remains very large. And a lot of people depend on the economy here and the water supply. So there are efforts to build even more storage, water storage. Right now, the discussion is mostly off-stream storage, right? Mm-hmm. So how can we get flood water off-stream, store it for when we need it in dry years, with potential sea level rise and the very real likelihood of a catastrophic earthquake that might affect the delta pumps in the delta. There's discussion of building a new intake, which is known as the tunnel project mm. in the delta, mm-hmm. that would siphon more water or at least a diff- in a different way through the delta. Those projects are, are controversial, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people who are advocating for more water to be left in the streams to mm-hmm. help support the native fish species that are in rapid decline. And then there's a lot of innovation going on about floodplain restoration and habitat that can provide for both fish and birds that can kind of reconnect the riverine systems with the uplands that supported and provide nutrients to fish and birds and kind of bring back some of the riparian habitat that we've lost, breaching those levees in strategic locations mm. to re, re, reenact or reinvigorate the floodplain that was once here mm-hmm. to try and support native species. 
but yeah, there's still a lot of challenges. Right. And we're not even talking about groundwater and safe drinking water and communities that, you know, have popped up uh, and grown throughout the Central Valley that have historically relied on water sources that might not be there in mm-hmm. the coming decades. Mm-hmm. One of the issues facing these Central Valley towns is that the ground itself is sinking due to the groundwater being depleted. According to an LA Times article on the topic, parts of the valley floor have collapsed about 20 feet over the last 65 years, including about 10 feet over the last 20 years as repeated droughts have added to the strains on groundwater. The way this works is that the dropping water levels are leaving underground spaces in layers of gravel, sand, and clay, causing the ground to collapse and sink. With water being pumped out for communities and agriculture and then not being restored by the seasonal flooding that would have historically taken place, the groundwater is getting more and more depleted. Wells are going dry, and in my mind, it raises the question, who gets water and who doesn't? The older communities have the river rights, typically. Is that kind of how it goes? Yeah, California has a strange hybrid system of water rights. Uh We have appropriative and riparian. So on the east coast of the United States, where rain falls plentifully during the summer, it's mostly riparian rights, which Mm -hmm. means if you live by a river or a stream, you have a right to reasonably use water from it. Mm -hmm. In the west, where it was more about gold mining, hydraulic mining, building canals Mm -hmm. in the San Joaquin Valley, some of the earliest canals were dug tens, if not hundreds of miles to carry water to farmland. A lot of Western states have the appropriative water rights mm. system, which is first in time, first in right. If you okay. get to a stream and you dig a canal or a diversion and you take the proper measures to document that, then you have a senior water right mm. and you have a right to take that water to, you know, to a different place mm. and use it and divert it. So in California, we have a mix. Mm. So there's both appropriative water rights. Those date back to the 1800s and there are riparian water rights, which they still exist if you mm. own property next to a stream or a river. And so because of that system, you have a lot of hierarchies of different water users with different abilities to use water in times of shortage. Mm. Mm-hmm. These water rights really, they're really most important in times of shortage like we're having today. There's mm-hmm. a huge drought, mega drought, they say. Most of the appropriative water right holders and even the contractors of the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project who get water from those dams, they have been allocated zero water this mm-hmm. year, whereas the, some of the senior water rights holders are getting up to 75%. We also have pretty protective environmental standards here, mm-hmm. so the, the managed wetlands that are still around to try and mimic the floodplain and provide habitat for birds and other wildlife, they get hopefully a reliable amount of water mm-hmm. and there are standards set to protect the temperature and the flows in the rivers to support fishery species mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's there's a hierarchy of water rights. There's winners and losers in California mm-hmm. water. You know, luckily we have pretty robust markets where water is traded. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of transfers and exchanges that happen in times of shortage. Mm-hmm. where the senior water rights holders can make more water available to others who I don't see. have any. But there's also a lot of talk about how unfair the whole system is if you're just coming into it with fresh eyes and you see the disparity of access to water. Wow. And so is that, I have driven through the San Joaquin Valley many times on my way to Disneyland and mm-hmm. seen the signs, Congress created Dust Bowl. Mm-hmm. 
Is that what that's referring to? Is it kind of one of those, is it a water rights conflict? Well, a lot of that controversy in the San Joaquin Valley revolves around restrictions of how much water can be taken from the Delta. Okay. So the in the 80s and 90s, there was a collapse of the salmon species and other native fish species. There was also a small collapse of the migratory bird species as well. Mm-hmm. Some of those species were listed under the Endangered Species Act, the federal law that protects species that are threatened and endangered. And so as a result, and also because of the need to just keep the Delta, what we call fresh, to keep Mm. enough fresh water flowing into the Delta to meet drinking water standards for exports, to meet standards for agriculture. There are rules put in place by both the state and federal government that require a certain amount of outflow to happen through the Delta, that require a certain level of salinity to be Mm. maintained and Mm -hmm. fresh water to be maintained in the Delta, and that require certain temperatures to be maintained especially in the Sacramento River, to support spawning salmon that are blocked from accessing their historic, um, more cold water spawning grounds. And as a result of all those rules, we have what's called biological opinions that govern those operations. Mm. They're basically uh, approved by the fish and wildlife agencies, and they say, this is how you need to operate these huge pumps, these dams, the releases, everything. And that has resulted in a lot of restrictions on how much water can be pumped through Mm -hmm. the Delta Mendota Canal and the California Aqueduct to those users, especially Mm -hmm. the agricultural users. And so in certain years, there's just no water to be pumped because a lot of it is, you know, dedicated to environmental uses and the maintenance of water quality in the Delta. And so those those controversial signs are anger at the result of Mm -hmm. regulation. Whether that regulation is good and bad, you know, I'm an environmentalist. I Mm -hmm. have seen the benefits to habitat of having very strong regulations for refuges to keep those habitats alive. So that's, Mm -hmm. it's just an an ongoing battle. We have a new set of biological opinions that's going to be developed in the next couple of years under Mm -hmm. this, this presidential administration. And so it will just continue to be almost a battle of science, right? What does the Mm -hmm. science show we should be doing to keep species alive? And there's a lot of differences of opinion about that. And also it's over time, it's getting worse for the fish. It doesn't seem to be helping. And a lot of the recovery that was hoped for has not occurred. Mm-hmm. And so I think on, on both sides of the fence, so to speak, whether you're a farmer or you're a fisherman or a fish advocate, it, it's really frustrating and it's difficult. And it's often very difficult to have those conversations about what is the best use of this precious resource that we have. It's hard to live in a finite world, mm-hmm. you know, and I think we have this mentality in our culture of abundance, you know, and kind of feeling like, I can get anything I want on Amazon. Like, why can't I just like pump water out right? And and it's hard, I think, sometimes to remember that we do live in this finite world and that when that happens, there's going to be conflicts over how to use it yeah. and how to protect it. Yeah. So the next the next generation can use it as well. The problems we're facing with water in California are significant. And Ellen will get into some of the possible ways to help both humans and wildlife thrive in the midst of these challenges in just a little bit. But now that we've discussed what the Central Valley used to look like and then the policies and infrastructure that changed it, I wanted to hear more about what the valley looks like now in comparison with the Central Valley of 150 to 200 years ago. How many areas are there that still flood and and how many areas that kind of would have been floodplains are now established cities like Sacramento that don't flood anymore? And so kind of could you maybe point out what some of the differences are that we see today? 
Yeah, so now there are an estimated 200 to 250,000 acres of wetlands remaining in the San Joaquin Valley. So we've lost, or in, in the Central Valley, excuse mm-hmm. me. So we've lost about 90 to 95% of the wetlands that used to be here, mm-hmm. the floodplains that used to be here. That's a huge change. Mm-hmm. The remaining wetlands that we have in the Central Valley are now called, many of them are now called managed wetlands. Mm-hmm. And that's because we bring water into them to mimic what used to be here. And we manage it very carefully Mm -hmm. to flood and grow those grasses, those those grasses that used to be here, Mm -hmm. as well as other food grasses and water grasses that feed migratory birds. Then we draw that water down in the the spring and and let it dry out in the summer. And it really supports the migration of birds and other Mm -hmm. species. The primary surrogate habitat to replace a lot of what's lost is agriculture. Mm -hmm. So we have hundreds of thousands of acres of winter flooded rice in the Mm -hmm. Sacramento Valley, which you can see if you fly in anywhere uh, Mm -hmm. over the valley. And those, the flooding is done to help decompose the rice straw after it grows, but Mm -hmm. it provides, farmers learned that it provides enormous benefits to wildlife. Mm -hmm. And so that really, along with agriculture in the San Joaquin Valley, like alfalfa, it really provides a surrogate habitat Mm -hmm. for a lot of birds. Uh, The giant garter snake, which is an endemic species to the Central Valley. It's a beautiful snake. Not mm-hmm. all people like snakes, but, but <laughs> I like snakes. Yeah, that that <laughs> snake fan. now lives in irrigation canals and rice mm. fields and re- wildlife refuges, and it's holding on by a thread, but yeah. that's kind of the remaining habitat. There are still remnant populations of tule elk. Mm. Um, there's an enclosure in the San Luis National Wildlife Refuge where they keep captive a captive herd that was the last herd of tule elk. At one point, there were I think less than 100 and they rounded them up and now that herd of elk has repopulated the Carrizo Plains, Uh Point Reyes, other places throughout the state where where we can hopefully you know reestablish Mm -hmm. populations of elk. Salmon and other species of fish like the Delta smelt which was this estuarian fish. I mean I think you could picture there just being little fish all over the place in -hmm. the valley back then right. There's little basins and rivulets and tiny fish and the smelt thrived. They were once Mm -hmm. one of the most abundant little fish. Mm -hmm. And now they are on the verge of extinction. There's just not enough habitat for them to survive. So they have really suffered, like I said, with the loss of an anadromous fish spawning habitat Mm -hmm. and that they've really taken a hit. The migratory birds, some of them are still in decline. The shorebirds especially. So shorebirds tend to pass through the valley in the spring Mm -hmm. when the floodplains are really shallow and their little legs can, (laughs) you know, get in there. And they are still in significant decline, unfortunately. But other water birds like waterfowl, so the geese, ducks, cranes that make their way from Alaska and Canada down through the Central Valley Mm -hmm. onto Mexico every year and back, they have stabilized. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because what I said, there's a pretty strong rules in place to protect water supplies for wildlife refuges. And there's a big effort to restore more wetlands and Mm -hmm. restore more floodplains. And so there used to be an estimated 40 to 50 million waterfowl that came through the valley. And now we're at about 8 million. And that's up from two or three million in the okay. in the so late been 80s. A recovery. So a little bit of a recovery there. That's good. Yeah. And those wetlands that have been preserved or are now managed wetlands, like you said, are those scattered pretty well across the entire Central Valley so that birds have a kind of various places to stop on their journey, or are they more concentrated in certain areas? 
Yeah, so I work a lot to defend what's called the Central Valley Project Improvement Act. That applies to the federal project, and that established water supplies for 19 habitat areas throughout oh, the wow. valley. And mm-hmm. they span from Kern County, the Kern National Wildlife Refuge, and Pixley Wildlife Refuge, all the way up to the Sacramento National Wildlife Refuge in the northern Sacramento Valley. I would kind of call it like a string of pearls Mm -hmm. that's meant to help protect the remaining wetlands. And the grasslands is one of the bigger ones. And ideally, migratory birds would have more habitat in the Salton Sea, way to the Mm -hmm. south, than Mm -hmm. in the Central Valley, than in the Klamath Basin, which is a very important area for migratory birds. But unfortunately, especially this year, what we're seeing is those areas are almost completely dried up. So the refuges this year will get less. The Klamath refuges will get none. And the Salton Sea is ever shrinking. And so we do see that string of habitat areas to to where birds can rest and feed Mm -hmm. and restore themselves and refuel. Those are starting to diminish and we're working really hard to try and protect that flyway Mm -hmm. and protect the, you know, the ability of the birds to keep to keep traveling along there. Right, because, you know, you lose one or two of those stops. And then if there's too far between that stop and the next one, yeah. I mean, you could lose you could lose a lot of birds. Yeah, they call it the body condition of a bird when it arrives. You know, how skinny is it? How mm-hmm. much fat stores does it have? How tired is it? Mm-hmm. How and that affects their ability to breathe the next year. Sure. If there's not enough habitat, they get crowded into what little wetland habitat is there and that can spread disease. Mm-hmm. As we're very familiar with, you know, right. proximity <laughs> is a right. big deal. So there have been outbreaks of, of avian cholera and botulism and things like that in those years when there's so little habitat that the Mm -hmm. birds are too crowded together. This is just one of many reasons why restoration work is vitally important. Make sure to go back and check out the previous episode on ecological restoration if you haven't listened yet. Next, I wanted to know the direction we're going as a state when it comes to water. And I want to make a note that we recorded this interview all the way back in April of 2022, well before all of the recent atmospheric rivers hit California this January. And additionally, on the day that this episode releases, there's either rain or snow in the forecast for much of the state, including in Sacramento, where I live. But despite all of that water, we're unfortunately still in a drought. And we're expected to see this cycle of extreme dry years mixed with inundations continue with climate change. So even though we're not currently in a dry year, everything else that Ellen's about to say still stands. There's a lot happening in California Mm -hmm. water right now. It doesn't help that it's one of the driest years ever recorded, right? Mm -hmm. But there's, I think, three main things that are happening. One is the update of our water quality standards at a state level Mm -hmm. for the Delta and for those rivers that feed into the Delta. That is being run by the State Water Resources Control Board. Mm And that process has resulted in a tentative agreement called the Voluntary Agreements, where some of the big water users and the state and federal agencies have come together and said, okay, we agree we're going to leave more water in the stream for fish, Mm -hmm. but we're also going to restore a lot of floodplain habitat and put money toward reconnecting the floodplains to see if that will help revive Mm -hmm. the fish. It's controversial. The environmental community and tribal communities don't think it's going far enough to Mm -hmm. leave water in the rivers that's needed. But that is a huge thing that's going to be on the radar Mm -hmm. and in the newspapers probably for the next five years. 
Um, you have the revamp of these biological opinions that is going to take a look at what the federal and state water projects can better do to manage their temperatures, flows, exports from the Delta, and put new requirements on. I think those two things will come together at some point, and frankly, I think they should, right? Because you've got these state and federal efforts, just like we've had in California for almost 100 years, trying to manage things separately, and we need to really work to come together Mm -hmm. on what's needed for the species. And then you have what's called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, or SIGMA, which Mm -hmm. requires most of the basins within the Central Valley to come up with a 20-year plan to achieve groundwater sustainability, Mm -hmm. to stop pumping more groundwater than we are replenishing Mm -hmm. on a long-term basis. And that, I think, is going to lead to a lot of retirement of farmland. It's going to lead to some new projects to try and supplement with surface water or better spread water around the state, Mm -hmm. like we were talking about, or like, you know, a lot of people have been trying to do for a lot of, a lot of time. And, and I think you will hear a lot about Sigma in the coming mm-hmm. five, 10 years as these local growers and cities and communities and ecosystem managers really try to grapple with what does sustainability mean mm-hmm. and what do we have to do to achieve it from a groundwater perspective? Because groundwater and surface water, they really are interlinked in mm-hmm. California. And for hundreds of years, we've pumped groundwater in times of drought and we've, we've used floodwater in times of plenty. Mm-hmm. And so we just need to, we need to balance that better. When you talked about off-stream storage, mm-hmm. could you say a little bit more about that too? What does that look like? What does that mean? Yeah, so there's, there's a big project that's proposed called the Sites Reservoir in Sacramento Valley. Again, it's controversial, and I hate mm-hmm. to keep saying that, but it's it's well, a, it all is. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge yeah. reservoir that would essentially try to take water during those wet times and put it in storage, and then release it in times that could both help, hopefully, help with some fish habitat, some refuge habitat, and uh, irrigation. Take pressure off of some of the other big mm-hmm. reservoirs that could then hopefully store more water. The Hoopa tribe on the Trinity River is very concerned about increased exports of water from the Trinity River into the Central Valley. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I didn't mention is that the Trinity River does not naturally flow into the Central Mm -hmm. Valley. And during that big engineering boom, a tunnel was built to bring water into the Sacramento Mm -hmm. from the Trinity. And so there's not, I don't think there's a connection between these new storage projects and and the the Trinity River, but there's always efforts to to restore the flow of the Trinity River Mm -hmm. to provide for more habitat and support the salmon fishing lifestyle of the the Hoopa and other tribes. So going back to the off-stream storage, the sites reservoir would be, like I said, a way to take water in times of plenty and use it in times of less. There's smaller, less controversial reservoirs being proposed, like the Los Vaqueros Reservoir Expansion Project in the East Bay. That project would raise an existing off-stream reservoir, and it would take water when there's excess flow through the delta. It would take water and store it and then deliver about half of the water to wildlife refuges and Mm -hmm. half of the water to cities in the Bay Area that could store it for an emergency, Mm -hmm. store it for a drought. That project will also support some agriculture in the San Joaquin Valley. And so that That's an example of a great partnership of different interests who are coming Mm. together to build Mm. a smaller scale off-stream reservoir that will provide multiple benefits. So is that one less controversial? Yeah, to my knowledge, it does not have any organized opposition to it, and it's mm-hmm. moving forward at a good click. Okay. I should disclose I sit on the board of the Joint, <laughs> joint Powers Authority for that reservoir. I'm, I'm like the green Well, then you would know, that, if, you would know if there were people opposing it then. That's right. Uh, with the larger project, why? what makes it so controversial? Who's for it and who's against it and what's going on there? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the big controversy is if you take a lot of water off the stream, how much are you required to leave in the stream, mm -hmm. right? So we have, a lot would argue that we have over allocated our water resources mm -hmm. already. And yes, there are times when we have so much water we don't know what to do with, when mm -hmm. things flood, when it's a big water year. But in those years when it's not the biggest water year ever, you know, how much water do you need to leave in the stream to support downstream communities, fish and others, mm -hmm. uh, other water users? And so they have scaled back the size of the site's reservoir okay. quite a bit to, to address that issue. Issue. But that's the main controversy there. I think there's a lot of effort to maybe store water in the ground through groundwater recharge and mm. floodplain projects mm -hmm. that would spread water out when, you know, it would have historically flooded in the valley and spread out, sure. sink it into the ground and then be able to pump it later in dry years. And so those projects are getting a lot of traction right now. Okay. There's also projects to build more regional reliability. So in each watershed, what can you do to better utilize your local water resources through uh, water recycling, desalination of mm -hmm. seawater, which is expensive and controversial as well, mm -hmm. but you know, what could you do to better spread water out on the floodplains or reoperate some reservoirs to, to better provide and thereby not require the import of water from outside your watershed. Sure. There's a lot being done in Southern California, especially on stormwater recapture okay. and just efficiency, mm -hmm. right? How do we as city dwellers better use our water resources? How can agriculture better use its water resources, which they have become ever more efficient mm -hmm. over the last few decades? So there are a lot of movements. And with the Delta pumping, you know, how can we maybe rethink those pumps? Are there ways to build just pumps that are down below the water that just gravity feed instead of mm. suck the water oh, into into what was, you know, once the San Joaquin. So more self-regulating almost? If the water's yeah, higher, then they're getting more water. Yeah, a little okay. bit more, more gentle, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of using pumps and mm -hmm. dams, you know, is there a way we can spread and store and re reconnect water in a way that, that is working with nature instead of against it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that will solve all our problems, but, but there's a lot of innovation going on. That's great. I was really excited to hear about the thinking being done for water solutions. And I wanted to know more about what an environmentally conscious Californian might want to see going forward. I think there's a balance to be made, so I won't mm -hmm. go out too far on a right. limb. You know, I think some people would love to see all the rim dams come down right. and the whole Central Valley become a big floodplain mm -hmm. again and, you know, for fish to thrive and people to move on. And, you know, I, I get that. But I think that ideally we will find places where we can start breaching those levees mm -hmm. and allowing water to flow back like it used to across the landscape. Mm -hmm. Ideally, we will restore and maybe take out some of the smaller dams on the mm -hmm. tributaries that could really provide that upstream spawning habitat. Ideally, we would protect and preserve the refuge water supplies we have now and then expand our floodplain habitat to also support and improve the migratory birds. And ideally, I think we would figure out a limit on how much acreage of irrigated agriculture mm -hmm. our system can support. Mm -hmm. And we will fallow some of that land and restore it to some of the upland habitat mm. and native grasslands that used to be here. That's That would be my vision. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, just kind of finding the most practical, the most forward-thinking sort of ways of meeting all of the needs as much as possible. 
yeah. basically. Yeah, while supporting mm -hmm. the communities mm -hmm. that, that live here now and really thinking about the fact that we are connected as a state. As much as a Northern California might not like the fact that someone in Los Angeles depends on water from their watershed to survive, that is the way of our state. And I think the more connected we can feel to each other and understand where each other is coming from, the better. Because, you know, we all need water. Animals need water. Fish need water. People need water. And we have to, I think we have to put ourselves in each other's shoes a little bit more mm -hmm. as Californians to come up with the best solutions. Mm -hmm. Okay, take out your notes app or your trusty pad of sticky notes because Ellen's about to tell you some very cool places you can go visit. If you want to see some of what it used to be like, mm -hmm. there are still places you can go to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the Carrizo Plains that I mentioned, which has been restored with antelope and tule elk and still has that super bloom of flowers mm -hmm. that used to cover the, the San Joaquin Valley. You can still go see that. What time of year is the super bloom? Like spring? Like spring. Right uh -huh. Yeah. You, you can go see that elk herd at the San Luis National Wildlife mm -hmm. Refuge and also take a drive around the wetland to see the migratory birds. You can go to the Nimbus fish hatchery and see the salmon running in the American River. And there are other refuges in the, the Sacramento Valley where in the winter, like December, January, if you go at sunset, you will see the most amazing display mm. of birds flying around that it's, it's amazing to witness. So oh, the Sacramento so National Wildlife Refuge and the Gray Lodge National Wildlife Refuge both have driving auto tours with a couple stops you can get out and, you know, maybe bring some cheese and crackers and wait for sunset and just enjoy that show. Sounds amazing. Um, the Merced National Wildlife Refuge has a huge population of cranes, of sandhill cranes. And if you go at sunset in the winter, you will see the cranes fly into the refuge to bed down for the night. And it feels like you're in that primordial forest marsh that used to You're cover looking the around for the valley. giant salmon and the giant sloths and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to see examples of the riparian forest that used to be here, you know, go take a bike ride on the American River mm -hmm. Parkway or go down to the San Joaquin River National Wildlife Refuge where mm -hmm. there's still these intact riparian forests oh. that are a little bit of what it used to be covering the whole valley. That's perfect. I think that people will find lots of wonderful places to go and look at. So Ellen, thank you so much for meeting up with me and making time for this and doing so much homework <laughs> to figure out all of this history. So. Of course, I'm not a technical naturalist, so if I made <laughs> any mistakes, please forgive me, but it was great talking to you and I'm very, I'm very excited about your podcast, Michelle. There is still so much we need to figure out about water in the Central Valley and in California in general. As Ellen pointed out, a lot of it is highly controversial, and I know it won't be easy to make sure that we can help human communities and wildlife coexist and thrive, but I find it incredibly encouraging that so many people are working together to find real solutions to these problems, and that projects exist where a wide variety of interests are coming together to move forward and ensure that we can continue to live on and form a deeper relationship with this beautiful land and the many species who also call it home for many generations to come. I want to give a big thank you to Ellen Weir for making the time to meet up with me and finding a quiet place to talk in the middle of a city, which is not an easy feat, and for just being so thoughtful to the point of sending me information about great places to visit on an upcoming family trip. That is way above and beyond, Ellen. Thank you. And for the second episode in a row, I want to thank my friend Eric DeCock, 
this time because he actually introduced me to Ellen and made this episode possible. So thank you, Eric. I learned so much and am so grateful for your help. Something interesting from my week is that I procrastinated really bad on making this episode. So now it's 11.02 and I haven't taken a shower yet today. So just be thankful that this isn't a live in-person podcast event. Okay, that's all for today. Thanks for sticking around to the very end of the episode. I'll see you next time on Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song and the Creative Commons license in the show notes.